Welcome to Manage Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Ansaro, the senior editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Rising healthcare costs and increased cost sharing for U.S. patients and their families are placing millions at risk of bad credit, destroyed savings, even bankruptcy as a result of medical debt. Today on Managed Carecast, we're speaking with Robert Goff, one of the authors of the book, End Medical Debt. Robert and his co-authors, Jerry Ashton and Craig Antico, began RIP Medical Debt, a tax-exempt charity that buys and forgives medical debt. The charity gained attention in 2016 after John Oliver featured the organization so he could buy and forgive this medical debt. Forgiving debt is not a solution to the problems and issues facing healthcare, but on today's podcast, Robert will discuss how it works and who it benefits. Robert, thank you for joining us today on Manage Carecast. Allison, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Why did you, Craig and Jerry, write this book? Well, this actually is the second book that we did together. First one is the one that uh, came to the attention of John Oliver. So we created this, we wrote the first book really to explain what had troubled us from our different perspectives. Jerry and Craig are in the collection business or were in the collection business. I have been in healthcare administration as among the founders of one of the early HMOs and had run a run a physician organization for nearly 20 years and was always troubled by this issue of the costs getting in the way of providing care. And in dealing with the issue, uh, we had taken a page really from Occupy Wall Street, which had created a work group with the idea of acquiring medical debt and abolishing it. When that group decided they would abandon the project, Craig, Jerry, and I decided that we would form a charity and continue on that venture that charity being RIP Medical Debt. About the same time or or shortly after putting together the first book, which was called The Patient, the Doctor, and the Bill Collector, uh, John Oliver decided to take on the issue of medical debt. And he was building his show, working it out, and the attorneys at HBO kind of threw a monkey wrench in. They had a real problem with the entertainment business, buying $15 million of consumer medical debt, And his original plan was to abolish it on the air by listing the names of the people that they were going to abolish it for. And the attorneys at HBO said, I think we have a problem. They called an attorney that I've worked with for many years that said, gee, who's in healthcare. And as a healthcare expert, they said, how do you handle it? And her response, because we just had lunch about a week earlier, I gave her a copy of the first book. She says, I know the people who can do it for you. And she introduced us to the John Oliver Show. And within a period of really days, we're in their offices designing how we could support the show. So we're rather ecstatic because we ended up on behalf of John Oliver abolishing the $15 million worth of medical debt. And clearly from that point, we, which had been limping along in this little charity, uh, rose to a degree of prominence that has continued, that really surprised us. Uh, It crashed our website. It overloaded our phones. and we took off from there. Now, just as an aside, the $15 million mark was picked by John Oliver because he wanted to out Oprah Oprah. 
the largest giveaway on TV in history was Oprah giving away $7.6 million worth of cars to her audience. John Oliver wanted to beat that. So he said, I'm going to do $15 million. So I will have the largest TV giveaway in history. And which he did. We in our little charity were mentioned um, three times and our logo spent nine seconds on the show screen. And from there, the charity has grown dramatically. We have now abolished in excess of a half a billion dollars worth of consumer medical debt. And so we are very indebted to John Oliver for uh, allowing us to kick our, kick our charity off in the way that we did. You also described in the book, you, as you mentioned just now, having three different perspectives. I think one of you is a moderate, one is a conservative, and one perhaps is more liberal. Why is this an issue no matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on? So, you know, the reality of the issue of consumer medical debt is it's there. It's a risk for everyone. You know, what most Americans don't understand is they could be one accident, one illness away from being impoverished by medical debt. We're trying to deal with the issue in our way by purchasing the consumer medical debt and abolishing it. Clearly, there's over a trillion dollars out there. What we do is a drop in the bucket, but we're doing what we can. As far as the solution goes, we do have different perspectives. I think I'm probably considered the moderate in the, uh, in the group. Um, Jerry Ashton is very much uh, liberal to the point where you know, he is all for uh, total government takeover. Craig is much more of the individual responsibility, should have stepped in here to avoid the problem. I take a middle road from my background as a healthcare administrator, uh, having been founder of an HMO, and look at it differently to the perspective you're not going to solve this issue unless you address the issue of cost. You know, if you don't address the issue of why does healthcare cost what it costs, forget the blame game, take the blames out. But why should it cost what it costs? And is there a way of delivering care faster, better, and cheaper? And focus there then in my mind, it's immaterial what model you use to try to address the issue of funding healthcare if it's not going to be payable by anybody. The idea that you can take healthcare and drop it on the government, whether it's Medicare for all and have some real issues with that, or a total government takeover, or you want to try to do something on insurance, you can't make insurance affordable if the product itself, healthcare, is unaffordable. So, when listening to both of their solutions, I take a very different, uh, probably a more middle-of-the-road approach, but I still come from the perspective of you got to deal with the cost issue. Insurance is nothing more than the costs of care, then being marked up for the administrative costs, and what is in health insurance now a very paltry profit margin, and that's how premiums are set. This isn't the days, and I, I'll have this conversation with people, I'll say, what do you think insurance companies are making in profits? And they'll always give me a double-digit number, 20%, 50%, 11%, and they're all wrong. Under health reform, as we know, insurance companies are limited to that they must spend 85% of premium dollars on health care, with 15% for everything else, marketing, administration, even taxes if they're included leaving them margins, profit margins that are smaller than many hospitals' profit margin. So they're kind of, they've kind of become public utility. So if, all we, if we don't address the cost going into it, then it's not going to be affordable no matter what model you use. Studies have shown that across the country there's wide 
variation in, in what people pay for the cost of healthcare. You know, a knee replacement in one city might be much less than in one city compared to another. And other studies in your book uh, talks about the issue of healthcare consolidation between hospitals and physicians and how the price of services then, go, then goes up with lots of different consolidation and mergers. You talk about that issue in your book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? You know, I'm, I'm happy to because it's probably the key piece that is being, that's absent from the discussion. Hospitals operate with government-protected monopolies. No one can turn around and open up a competing hospital across the street. So their role in the market is very much protected. As they consolidate, they increase their monopoly or their oligarchy power. That power allows them to drive up healthcare costs. What happens is simple. If a hospital has a good book, a good base of patients across several different types of insurances, they're in a very enviable position. We know Medicaid rates are fixed and are probably paying hospitals less than the actual cost. We have Medicare, which is paying hospitals a fixed rate, paying them probably about cost, maybe a little bit of a margin. Then there's the commercial business. Commercial business is priced based upon what the hospital can demand. There are actual areas where the hospital and its system is so large that if an insurance company doesn't agree to whatever price that hospital demands, they literally cannot sell in that community. So they either decide that they're going to suck it up, pay those costs, or not do business in that area. There's an interesting figure that just came out, uh, or I just saw in a report from the uh, National Council on Compensation Quality and what they spoke about was that when hospitals consolidate, the cost of running the business drops by 15 to 30% savings that accrue to those consolidated institutions. Yet at the same time, costs increase, they say, between 6 and 18%. Yet there was an AMA study in 2009 that said consolidation results in cost increases of 40%. So what you're seeing is not a cost associated with the real deliver better care, that it's quality driven. It's a matter of we have the ability to demand more, therefore we demand more. And this is funneling back into then premiums that are charged to employers. And so what do the employer does? The employer says, gee, I, I can't handle that rate increase. So here's what I'm going to do. They're either going to increase the payroll deduction or they're going to cut the benefits in which case we're putting more and more of that responsibility back on the individual, which is why the issue of consumer medical debt is really taking off. You know, health reform legitimized the deductible, the high deductible. So with health reform, of course, we expanded Medicaid and Medicaid, people who have expanded Medicaid have no co-pays, no deductibles, great. Of course, those people with a great deal of personal assets have never had an issue regardless. Now you have the middle class, and we're talking the range of middle class, the employed individuals in this country who have relied upon their employer to provide them with a comprehensive health insurance plan. Now they're being forced to pay a higher payroll and higher deductibles. And what we're seeing is the capacity of middle class America to absorb those costs isn't there. And yet they're not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, but they may be forced to expend all of their assets. So there was a figure that just came out in a study that I saw that 62% of people 
who have a cancer diagnosis expend 100% of their assets within two years of that diagnosis. A person with a cancer diagnosis is 2.6% more likely to have to file for bankruptcy. Now, these are not individuals who are on the margin. These are middle-class individuals who, because of limitations in their health insurance, have had to pay out of pocket, and they can't. They don't have the resources. You know, there was a study from the Federal Reserve that said 47% of Americans couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency, yet the average deductible is now $1,800. So what are we really doing in this process? We've set up the middle class to bear the brunt of the issue. But it still goes back to the point that I tried to make is that it's because of the cost. If the cost weren't as high, the insurance premium wouldn't be so high. If the insurance premium weren't so high, employers would absorb more of it. They would not have to pass on higher deductibles, higher co-pays, and consequently, there would be less of a risk that we'd be putting a middle-class America into. Does your charity analyze where the debt originated from? I know that when debts are sold over the years, they pass from one hand to the other hand to the other hand, from collector to collector, but... Have you ever done any analysis to see what started it all? Was it cancer? Was it something else? So right now, we're really working on trying to get the data ability to look at the uh, debts that we're buying based on diagnosis. That's in process. We're able, you know, we're a, we'll buy debt uh, that has largely been sold by hospitals. Physicians generally don't ha- sell their debt. There isn't an awful lot of it. They're willing to absorb it. Also, physicians in private practice have a relationship with the patient. There's a certain human bonding where they understand what's going on with the patient emotionally, physically, and the financial impact of it. So physicians in private practice have been much more willing to say, I accept that as a responsibility. Now, by the way, with the higher deductibles, it's becoming more and more difficult for physicians in private practice to do that. Remember, what we, what we did is we took those deductibles, which used to kind of be between the physician uh, when the person ended up in the hospital, and we now turn it into something where the physician, they got to collect it. So we've increased the private physician's collection costs. We've increased their bad debt. And that actually is a factor driving physicians out of private practice. When physicians become employed by these systems, the guy making the decision about bill collecting isn't the guy who had a personal relationship with that patient. That's a CFO who's trying to get, "Mm, how do I maximize every dollar that I can get? I'm going to do whatever I can. So I'm going to push those collections and I'm going to sell it because after all, look at that. I took this stuff we couldn't collect. Our collection agency couldn't collect and I found some money there. Didn't I do a good job? Me, the CFO. Well, they have no concept of what that means to the individual on the other end. So we're seeing this debt coming from hospitals on behalf of the hospital service and behalf of the physician services, far more so than in terms of the individual private practice physician. Down to the diagnosis level, that's where we want to go. We have a data project underway now to try to do just that, but we're a way away from getting that close to it. We can identify the originator of the debt, whether it's a hospital or a physician, uh, even if we're buying it from another source. Where we try to buy is from the individuals who are buying from the hospitals and from the systems, buying it right then and there. We'd like to get it before it's gone through multiple hands been sold and resold so we can get it out of the way. But 
you know, stuff that's been out there for a long time, we're able to buy up uh, inexpensively and let's get rid of that as well. You know, there's something that's wrong with a hospital, many of whom are not for profit, that are given money to take care of charity care, that don't really make an effort to do that for their patients. They post it in the ER and they're done. That then turns around and sells that, sells that debt to someone who's going to go out and sells it for pennies on the dollar to someone who'll go out and try to collect the full dollar. I mean, I find it interesting uh, watching a hospital that is advertising how great they are and their concern for the community, but sure enough, they sell that debt because they're concerned about milk in that community. How does your charity pick the debt? Is it just a numbers basis? Do you have cases before you? Um, do you use data analytics to pick the cases? So uh, we're picking the data based upon what's available for purchase that has been purchased from the institutions, uh, where we can purchase a large portfolio. We can't break it down by an individual and say, oh, we're going to buy his and we're not going to buy hers. Now, we can get some things where we can designate it. So, for example, a lot depends on our donors. So if we have a donor that says, look, I want to abolish the debt for this service area. And we will look for that zip code area. We had a, a great situation, a uh, evangelical church in North Texas that gave us uh, the money to abolish $11 million worth of debt in the zip code areas that they drew from. And we were able to do that. So if a donor says, look it, I want to donate uh, the money and have it for this specific area, that's where we will try to focus. We're able to break down based upon uh, whether they're a veteran, and we do have an effort in specific for veteran debt. Uh, in their families. And that we can, because of uh, databases the Department of uh, uh, Defense has, identify those individuals. Uh, as I said, diagnosis still escapes us. There are some people who might say that the charity lets certain industries or organizations off the hook, or maybe the government, since you just mentioned the Department of Defense or the VA. So, you know, the idea of charity letting people off the hook. My greater issue is on, on the hospital end right now is that the amount of charity care being provided by hospitals is actually dropping. There's less of it now than there's been in the past. And it isn't a matter of letting people off the hook. You know, nobody volunteers for illness and for accident. No one volunteers to have their, the security, the financial security of themselves and their family destroyed by an illness. Could they set up a different payment plan? Most of these individuals become so overwhelmed by the bills that are coming in from all the different sources, they can't handle it. And there is nobody that's stepping up saying, okay, let's work with you. So it's not a matter of, gee, we're letting people off the hook. We're really dealing with people that don't have the capacity. And I think that's important to note. We don't buy this debt and then say we're going to abolish all of it. What we are abolishing are those individuals who are two times above the poverty level, those individuals who are insolvent, more than 5%, uh, where the debt is more than 5% of their assets, or where there is really an overwhelming situation which they can't handle. So we're not looking, you know, if we tie in with databases to say, gee, this person has a tremendous amount of assets, but has been able to dodge the bill collector such that this, their debt has been sold. That's not debt we're looking to abolish. We're looking to abolish debt of necessity where it has, has really impacted the financial well-being of the family. And what we learn, and I think anybody involved in healthcare knows, 
that when individuals have medical debt, you see that they restrain themselves from using additional medical services. They cut back on whether it's treatment, whether they avoid a prescription, they avoid interfacing with the healthcare system, which if anybody in healthcare knows, especially with chronic illnesses, it just ends up in the emergency room costing more. So it's a really foolish situation that we're in if the goal is to have a healthier America. Now, that's, that's where we're missing it. You mentioned that in your book, too, that as people live longer and live longer with chronic diseases, the amount of funding that's being spent on healthcare expenditures keeps rising. Do you have a breakdown of uh, the age of the people that you help or of, you know, how long they've had the debt for? I think Health Affairs reported last year that medical collections falls with age. Well, they fall, it falls with age because of Medicare. You know, at age 65, an individual hits Medicare. And well, Medicare, you know, you have to buy the Part B. But if you are indigent, it's Medicare, Medicaid. So we've right. taken care of a great portion of people's financial exposure. What we're seeing is the debt that we're buying is really young people, working people, people with families that make too much for Medicaid, even the expanded Medicaid under health reform, and aren't at 65. But the issue in terms of healthcare costs still exists in the 65 plus population. You know, the reality is we've just funding it through a different mechanism. The problem that Medicare comes up with or individuals with Medicare is that if you are still have too many assets to qualify for Medicaid, you have to buy a wraparound. Fortunately, because Medicare is picking up roughly 85, 80% of the cost, those wraparound policies aren't that expensive. But uh, you know, the best Medicare wraparound is running about $230, $250 a month. That can be hard for some people. And you know, that's one that has no deductible and no copay. So there are some variations in the wraparound, but there is a financial exposure. Fortunately, a lot of people are able to make that premium. And so they're able with Medicare kicking in the bulk of the cost or bulk of the, picking up the bulk of the cost, there is that financial safety net that's there. Probably one of the most remarkable things is we do have a healthier over 65 population in this country than most countries because of Medicare, because we stepped in at that point. Now, there's a great story about why the health insurance industry did not oppose Medicare. And the basic reason was because they sat down with the Johnson administration and said, let me explain it to you simply. They'll pay, these people pay you premiums. And then when they hit 65 and they really get sick, they're not going to be your responsibility anymore. What a windfall. And the health insurance industry says, gee, good deal. We're, we're in. All right. That becomes, you know, that's the reality there. Our focus and I think, uh, you know, the real concern is, what we've done for people that used to, two people who we used to rely on comprehensive health insurance benefits offered through their employer, many of whom don't find out about the deficiencies and deductibles, co-pays, these limited networks, these you know, conditions that have to be met for coverage until it happens. And so I've always cautioned people, to, you gotta, you know, you gotta take the time to understand what your exposure is. I understand a $2,000 deductible or, you know, there's a bank in New York City that has five and $10,000 deductibles. You gotta plan on it. 
plan on put the put start putting money aside. Unfortunately, there are people who can't afford to put money aside. That's a reality of the economics and the jobs and wages. Correct. I guess that's why some people would say it's time for a single payer system or a Medicare for all system, but we're not going to go there today. <laughs> well, you know, beyond the scope of this book. I mean, I can comment on on those. My there are a couple of objections to these statements. One, most of the people who are promoting Medicare of all for all don't understand what Medicare is. They don't understand that it is limited. They don't understand that there is that uh, 80% with a 20% responsibility. They somehow think that magically at 65, everything's paid for by Medicare. It doesn't. If you really wanted to promote, if you really, if you really want to promote a benefit plan for Americans that is comprehensive, you would say Medicaid for all because Medicaid has no co-pays, no deductible, includes long-term care. Now, there are some other technical things about Medicare that are problematic. They really don't have rating experience for pediatrics and obstetrics, but that's, you know, a minor piece. The great problem that I come into with these ideas is it's kind of like we're going to solve the problem by dumping it on the government to be the financing source. Well, if you don't do something about the cost, you're just creating a situation where the cost will continue to rise. Now, that's all that's being done, which is going to then come back in taxes, and we know how much Americans love paying taxes. So you're not going to have the support to say, let's pay more because you know, we got this coverage. No, there will be that objection. And all that's going to occur is to institutionalize an infrastructure for healthcare delivery that is neither efficient, effective, high quality, or responsive. I don't think that's the way to build a system. No, your charity, it started with the three of you volunteering, and I read in your book, I think you have 20 staff employees, so there are still um, administrative costs now because I assume those 20 people are not volunteering. Uh, that's correct, but I will tell you the most remarkable things have happened with this, with RIP Medical Debt. We have a group of individuals who stepped up and volunteered to pay our administrative costs. The bulk of our administrative costs are being paid for separately by some individuals who are in the investment community. They became aware of us through the John Oliver Show. I will tell you the amount of due diligence they did on us was significant, and I respect that. But they said, look, we will commit several hundred thousand dollars a year towards just your administrative costs. And so that has really helped us to put the bulk of the dollars into buying the medical debt. So, you know, medical debt is being sold by these hospitals for pennies on the dollar. Remember, they're selling the right for 12 cents, 18 cents, 22 cents for somebody to go out and get the full dollar. Well, I want to get funded so I can buy it before it goes to the someone, you know, with the bat who's trying to collect the full dollar. We want to buy that. We buy it. We abolish it. We put it in what we call our debt cemetery. We make sure it gets out of the collections hands and we get to the credit reporting agencies. And this is important, I think, for people to understand. You know, credit reports are a drag on many people's employment opportunities. It's not only a matter of you won't get a credit card, you won't get house financing, you'll pay higher for a uh, car loan, but there are, I think it's about 47% of companies actually check credit ratings now. And so if you're turning people away from jobs or keeping them from getting promoted, this credit report 
is very important. So we go to the credit reporting agencies and say, that's gone, take it off, and the credit scores go up. And I think that helps out individuals dramatically in the process. Well, this was a really interesting conversation. I'm really glad I read your book. Is there anything else you want to say about this issue? Well, I will tell you, first off, thank you very much for the opportunity. We continue to try to spread the word. That's the purpose of the book and medical debt. And as we get the word out and people become aware of it, you know, in a perfect world, we would like to see a solution where we no longer have to exist. In the meantime, we're going to do what we can to try to get the support of people to abolish this medical debt. And then I think in the process, warn people to understand their health benefits as to avoid putting themselves in the situation where they have their personal financial lives disrupted by the unwanted accident and illness. And what's the name of the website of your organization again? www.ripmedicaldebt.org. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Robert. It was great to have you on, and maybe we'll talk to you again sometime when you're done collecting medical debt. (laughs) Thanks so much, Allison. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. To learn more about healthcare costs and health policy, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.